Hello, and welcome back to Agnes, the late antique, medieval, and Byzantine podcast. I'm Glenn McDorman, and today I'm joined by Dr. Richard Broom. Dr. Broom earned his PhD in history at the University of Leeds, and today he's going to talk to us about his article, Pagans, Rebels, and Merovingians, Otherness in the Early Carolingian World. This article appeared in the edited volume, The Resources of the Past in Early Medieval Europe. So, Dr. Broom, there are a lot of terms in your title, and so I thought we might just start by exploring what you mean by the two most significant of them uh, after the after the colon. Uh, and let's let's start with Carolingian, and maybe then move on to how you modify that as early Carolingian. The uh, the Carolingians, uh, a dynasty that ruled a people called the Franks, and then went on to rule most of Western Europe from the second half of the eighth century to the, the beginning of the tenth and uh, continued to rule intermittently until the end of the 10th century in what is now France. They were descended from a guy called Charles Martel, and the name is derived from the Latin form of his name, Carolus, Carolingian. And the early Carolingian period uh, is when they were really consolidating and expanding their power, especially under Charles Martel's son, Pippin, who was the first Carolingian king, and Pippin's son, Charlemagne, who was probably the most famous member of the dynasty and was crowned emperor on Christmas Day in the year 800. Um, Although historians still debate exactly what he was thought to be emperor of, and it was only centuries later that this title would evolve into that of the Holy Roman Emperor. So for the purpose of my article, I used early Carolingian world to mean the realm ruled by Pippin and Charlemagne, which expanded massively due to their wars of conquest. Uh, other historians might define the period slightly differently, though. And now let's uh, let's move on to the, the real can of worms in your title, which is otherness. Yeah. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about what, what otherness is and, and how you use it in the article? Yeah, it's, it's a really tricky term to define, actually. And I think everyone who uses it probably has a slightly different idea of exactly what it means and a slightly different definition. It was originally used by continental philosophy as a term for something outside or beyond our everyday experience or understanding. Um, It came to other humanities subjects, I suppose, mostly via anthropology, where it's used more to denote outsiders or those excluded in some way from a predefined community or group, which is more or less the way I'm using the term. And I'm particularly interested in what we can call the process of othering. That is how and why certain groups or individuals were singled out to be excluded. In this case, from the community of the Franks or the community that the Carolingians were trying to create for themselves. But uh, it's important to keep in mind that due to Carolingian expansion, the community consisted of groups other than Franks. So it was really more the community of the Frankish realm and the other peoples the Franks ruled. And that's why it was so important to define who was in and who was outside it. And so what are some of the groups of others that you focus on in your article? There are many groups that could be examined in this context, but I kind of picked out the three that I think are are the most prominent and really tell us a lot about what the Carolingians were doing politically and ideologically. And uh, the three groups are pagans, rebels, and the Merovingians, who were actually the 
dynasty that ruled the Franks before the Carolingians came to power. So that sounds like an awful lot to deal with in a single article. So can you tell us a little bit about the methodology that you used to to make that more manageable for a, a study of this size? What I tried to do, because it is a big, big topic, and to outline some general points relating to each of the groups. And then I also looked at some of the specific individuals who were targeted by this, uh, what we can call Carolingian propaganda. Because one thing that the Carolingians really like to do even more than finding groups of others is uh, to identify scapegoats to blame for some of the problems that Frankish society had gone through in its recent history. I suppose we're not that different today in terms of liking to find people to blame. And I think for the Carolingian authors, it's because individual rulers and saints, Christian saints, are at the center of their narratives. So it made sense for them to have antagonists. So while there are a lot of generalizations and wider points that that can be made, there's often a sense that problem groups have been led astray by certain individuals, especially their leaders. So that's kind of, there's, there's two sides to what I was doing with this article, really. The, the first is to identify these large groups, and the second is to identify some of these uh, individuals who were blamed for leading the groups astray. Well, I thought we'd just take these groups in turn then, and, and, and we'll just do them in the order that you've got them in your in your title. So let's, let's start with paganism. Uh, can you tell us just first a little bit about paganism and its relationship with the Franks here in the early Carolingian period? Paganism is in some senses, the absolute other for Carolingian authors. Since its origins, Christianity had defined itself in opposition to what Christians called paganism, which was originally the other religions of the Roman Empire. But in later centuries, and especially in the period we're looking at with the early Carolingians, it's pretty much anything that wasn't Christianity. Very much an explicitly Christian dynasty, presenting themselves as the defenders of correct Christian beliefs and practices. But by the end of the 8th century, Europe, south and west of the River Rhine, was Christian. The Rhine was a bit of a border. Beyond it, there were some Christians, some pagans, and some people whose religious beliefs were probably somewhere in between. At this time, there was a surge in missionary activity from Anglo-Saxons in particular who were coming from England to convert the pagans on the continent. So what we see in the uh, 8th century is a convergence of interest. The Carolingians want to conquer the lands beyond the Rhine, and the Anglo-Saxon missionaries want to convert the people living there. So the two go hand in hand. So if the missionaries were coming from uh, from Britain, from Anglo-Saxon Britain, rather than from Carolingian Gaul or Carolingian Western Europe, I mean, did the Carolingians not have an interest in converting uh, pagans to Christianity? Charlemagne had uh, a long period of fighting against the Saxons, who were a a pagan people at this time. And part of his war was not just to conquer them, but by conquering to convert them to Christianity. And conversion and conquest went hand in hand because the Carolingians were, were so explicitly Christian that to be their subjects, you had to be Christian yourself. So they there's this ambiguity where you, the, they want to convert the pagans and they want to conquer the pagans, but they can't be properly part of the, 
the Carolingian world until they're converted. So they have the, they have an interesting conversion, and there are definitely Frankish missionaries as well, and there are uh, Bavarian missionaries, and so there are there are missionaries coming from the Frankish world as well. But most of the missionaries, especially the early missionaries and the, the most prominent missionaries, were Anglo-Saxons, and they had their own ideology involved in that because uh, they had been uh, converted by missionaries sent by the Pope, and then they felt that it was a continuation of that process for them to go and convert the peoples who were still pagan on the continent. So going with uh, with your methodology, who is the, the sort of central figure that you've uh, selected here to, to look at paganism uh, through? Well, one of the most prominent pagans in the Carolingian sources is a guy called Radbod, and he's really interesting, I think. He was the ruler of a region called Frisia, which is more or less the modern Netherlands. They're from sometime in the 680s to 719 AD. He was a pagan who had very close ties with the Frankish court and with the Anglo-Saxon missionaries. As a political rival of Charles Martel's father, but eventually married his daughter to Charles's older stepbrother, then ended up at war with Charles as an ally of the Frankish king. So he's a pagan, but he's intimately involved with politics at the highest level of the Frankish world. So this immediately shows you that kind of ambiguity I was talking about, where pagans are involved in things that are happening with the Franks, but there's this kind of sense of exclusion simply because they're pagans. And there are two sets of sources for Radbod. The historical sources that tell the story I've just alluded to, and the saints' lives that examine his relationships with various missionaries. And I'm, I could talk about both sets, but for the purposes of, of my article, I focus just on the latter group of sources, because they're the ones where his paganism is really important and really emphasized. And how do these sources play with Radbod then as an, as an emblem of, of otherness? Something that's really interesting is that none of the saints' lives give us the same version of Radbod. So in each source, who's the subject of the text, comes into contact with Radbod at some point. But it's not always in the same way. As a pagan, we'd expect him to be described as this kind of evil king who hates the missionaries. But the overall picture is a bit more ambiguous. In the life of St. Boniface, he absolutely fits the negative stereotype. He unleashes a persecution against the Christians, forcing them out of Frisia, destroying their churches, and rebuilding pagan temples and idols. This is how events are described by the author of the text. And the author fits this into Radbod's war against Charles Martel, but he focuses on on this religious angle rather than any political disagreements between the two. But in later sources, things are a bit different. In the life of St. Willibrod, Radbod is a bit more open to the missionaries, allowing them to work in Frisia and even having discussions with Willibrod. But he refuses to convert. And the author, who's a guy called Alcuin, conceded that Christianity made more progress after Radbod's death. In fact, he uses this phrase 
but is unable to turn Radbod's heart of stone to life. So he's describing Radbod as more of a kind of unrelatable person than what we see in the life of Boniface. But, you know, it's still not completely positive. Radbod is still a pagan who refuses to convert, and so he's bad. This is elaborated on and we get even more detail in another source, the life of St. Wolfram, who is a Frankish missionary rather than an Anglo-Saxon. In this source, Radbod presides over some pretty gruesome human sacrifices, actually, Uh, although the victims are saved by Wolfram, so none of them actually die. Uh, There's a sacrifice by hanging and another one where they try to drown the victim. But Radbod has no problem with the missionaries working in the area, so he's, he's... you know, this kind of evil pagan king performing sacrifice. But he's happy for the missionaries to be there and, and do their thing. And actually, he allows Wolfram to recruit the people he saves from these sacrifices and, you know, take them with him on his on his missionary journeys. Uh, this source is also the origin of quite a famous story about Radbod, where Wolfram almost convinces him to be baptised. But just as Radbod's about to climb into the baptismal font, he pauses and asks one last important question, whether he will see his ancestors in the afterlife. Wolfram says no, because his pagan ancestors will be in hell, whereas once baptised, Radbod will go to heaven. And Radbod's not very keen on this idea of spending the afterlife without his ancestors, so he steps back out of the font and chooses to remain a pagan. It's, it's difficult to reconcile these portrayals to find the real Radbod. That's something that we can't really do. But we can learn about each author's aims in using Radbod in their stories. In The Life of Boniface, the aim was to show that the saint had shared the same enemies as Charles Martel, and to present these enemies in the worst possible way. In The Lives of Willibrord and Wolfram, the aim was to show that negotiation with pagans was possible. It wasn't just a case of Christians versus pagans they could actually potentially work together in certain situations. And in the life of Wolfram especially, the the purpose of this story about Radbod was to give an example of a debate a missionary might expect to have with a would-be convert. But however ambiguous, Radbod remains a pagan, and thus he's beyond the pale. So it sounds like uh, what you're showing is that in the in the earlier sources, uh, the more contemporary sources, that the, this sense of otherness is much stronger than in the later sources because this fit the needs of the contemporary political ideology. Is that is that right? Yeah, absolutely, and it's something we can see a lot actually. Um, there's often a much stronger sense of otherness in sources closer to the events that are being described because it's still so relevant to the audience and a stronger message needs to be made. So, for example, Radbod might still have been fresh in people's minds when The Life of Boniface was written and it was still important to show that he was this evil pagan figure, whereas later on things have changed and he can now be used as a sort of template rather than rather than being an evil pagan he's more this kind of figure to demonstrate how missionaries can actually go about talking to pagans so he's he's still another in the sense that 
he's a pagan, but there's a little bit more leeway. Uh, let's move on now to your, your second category of, of rebels. Uh, I'm, interested, I'm interested in who these rebels are and, and what exactly it means to be a rebel uh, against early Carolingian kings. Rebellion was a much more ambiguous concept for the Carolingians than it is for us, I think. Rebel, rebels are everywhere in the sources, but there are very few instances of what we would really consider rebellion, an uprising against one's ruler. Instead, the term is used to justify the Carolingian wars of conquest. So when Pippin or Charlemagne conquers a region, it's not because they're aggressors, it's because the inhabitants had allegedly rebelled against them. This is explained by the regional rulers owing loyalty to the Frankish rulers, even though this was usually only the Frankish view of the situation. Sometimes a whole people were seen as rebellious. For example, the Saxons, who we've already mentioned, It took Charlemagne some 30 years to conquer them, and in that time there were various treaties of submission. So each time hostilities resumed, it could be shown as a result of Saxon treachery. The fact that the Saxons were also pagans made them even worse. They were not only betraying oaths of loyalty, but also promises to convert to Christianity. So until their conquest was completed, they were seen as inherently rebellious, and often described as rebelling in their usual manner, as the sources put it. More often, though, a scapegoat was identified, a single individual, usually one of the regional rulers who had led their people astray. Once that person had been removed, the people could be integrated into the Carolingian world. So actually what it means to be a rebel against the Carolingians is more often than not to be one who resists their expansionism rather than one rising up against them as such. In the early Carolingian period then, were there people who were labeled as rebels, but who were perhaps independent or semi-independent rulers who, upon hearing that they've been labeled a rebel, simply acquiesced without violence? Or was violence always a part of this equation? I can't think of any who acquiesced without violence. There may be some, and maybe your listeners can uh, try and find them. But I think it's usually a case of violence. And it is difficult to know what the situation was from the other side, what the other perspective was, simply because pretty much all of the sources we have are written from a Frankish perspective. So whether these people did think they owed loyalty to the Franks and were willfully resisting is difficult to say. But I think something that's quite important to keep in mind is they may have owed loyalty to the Merovingian dynasty and then felt that when the Carolingians came to power that voided their relationship with the Franks or it may just be that they in cases like with Radbod for example he's already a powerful ruler he may not like how powerful the Carolingians are becoming so his hostility towards Charles Martel is not anti-Frankish, it's specifically anti-Carolingian. So it's a really complex situation, and a lot of what we see in the sources is definitely justification after the fact for what's happened. Well, let's move into talking a little bit about those sources. So maybe start by telling us who, which figure it is, that, which rebel it is that you've picked, uh, you know, as your case study for this, uh, for this article, and then uh, tell us a little bit about, about the sources that you had to use. Well, as you can 
probably imagine there are lots of rebels that I could have picked as the exemplar here. Um, but what I wanted to do was pick one who kind of ties everything together. And I picked someone called Griffo, who is a member of the Carolingian dynasty, actually, but one of the more obscure members. And he's important because, as I say, he brings the two ideas of rebellion together. He was the youngest stepbrother of Pippin, and he was Charles Martel's son by another woman. And it seems like Charles initially intended for his son to share power. But as is so often the case throughout history, that didn't happen. And as soon as Charles died, Griffo was excluded from power. The sources that tell us about Griffo are historical narratives. The 8th century continuations to the Chronicle of Fredegar, the Royal Frankish Annals, of which there are two surviving versions, and the Annals of Metz. All were written during the reign of Charlemagne, though the Annals were continued after. And this is where it's important to bear in mind that these are, as I said, justifications after the fact for things that have happened, coming to terms with recent history. Um, and these sources are actually all also thought to have been closely associated with Charlemagne's court. So they actually represent a kind of official version of events. Although, as we can see from looking more closely at what the sources say about Griffo, this official version probably changed over time. So how do these sources play with Griffo as an emblem of otherness then? Well, like with Radbot, each source gives a different version of Griffo. Though in this case, it's more about providing more information as time passes, and the versions can be more easily reconciled. All that we learn from the earliest source, the continuations, is that Griffo died while crossing the Alps to Italy in 753, shortly after Pippin had made himself king of the Franks. We have to assume that this sole brief notice would have been important to the author's readers, though. We only find out why from later sources, however. The Royal Frankish Annals mentioned that in 747, Griffo allied himself with the Saxons, then installed himself as ruler of Bavaria, but went to Aquitaine after being defeated by Pippin. It's only with the revised version of the Royal Frankish Annals and with the Annals of Metz that we learn more about Griffo's attempt to wield power in the Frankish kingdom itself, although these sources describe this as a rebellion against his brother in which he was encouraged by his mother, as well as explaining that he also led other Franks into rebellion with him. So again, we have this idea that he is a scapegoat. He has led people astray. In this case, it's actually Franks. So that's really important. And by fleeing to other places outside the Frankish heartland, Griffo also willingly associates himself with peoples and individuals who, according to these same sources, were rebels against Pippin the Saxons, and the rulers of Aquitaine and Italy. So if you read the, uh, the sources at the same time that Griffo's exploits are being described, we also hear about Saxons rebelling. We hear about the ruler of Aquitaine supposedly rebelling against Pippin. We hear about the ruler of Lombard, Italy rebelling against Pippin. And this is probably an attempt to lessen Griffo's own Frankish identity to make him seem more peripheral and to connect him with clear outsiders. And it's also interesting that Griffo became more important after Charlemagne had to deal with other 
supposedly rebellious Carolingians, his son Pippin the Hunchback, and his cousin Tassilo, the ruler of Bavaria. And this is almost the opposite of what we had with Radbod, where there you have this very extreme negative portrayal early on. With Griffo, we have the earliest sources almost ignoring him, and it's only later you get more information. And I think that's because later authors needed a precedent to show that junior members of the Carolingian family who rebelled against their superiors were willfully excluding themselves from the community. So after other rebellions that take place within the Carolingian family, authors go back to Griffo and say, this has happened before. Look what happened that time. This is what happens again. These people need to be excluded from the community, even though they're Carolingians, the rightful order. So let's talk about Merovingians now. Uh, this is a, a Merovingians are a, a pretty big category. And so before we really dig in on what you do with the Merovingians, I wonder if you could just first let listeners know a little bit about who the Merovingians were, who this this first dynasty of Frankish rulers were. Well, as you say, they were the first Frankish ro- royal dynasty. To kind of skim over a very complex topic, they took over where the Romans left off in Gaul and it's basically modern day France and with the name comes from the Franks although we don't really want to draw too many direct connections between these early Franks and any kind of later attempts to tie into Frankish identity. The Merovingians though successfully ruled the Franks for over 250 years uh, first as kind of conquering warlords in this maybe barbarian style but educated barbarians i think they would have wanted to see themselves as (laughs) and uh later on they became more kind of figureheads around whom peace and consensus among the nobility could be formed so there is this kind of transformation over 250 years of what the role of the merovingians in frankish society was They started off very much as these military figures, and then they become more symbolic, but they were still very much important to the way Frankish society worked. And the last Merovingian was overthrown by Pippin in 751. And this is why the Merovingians were made other by the Carolingians. Like the Wars of Conquest, the Carolingian usurpation of royal power had to be justified, Where Pippin's ancestors had been active politicians and commanders of the Frankish armies, the kings they served were described as useless and idle, doing nothing but carrying the royal title, which the Carolingians allowed them to have. At worst, the inactivity of these Merovingians was blamed for causing the political fragmentation that made the Carolingian conquest necessary. The later members of the dynasty had squandered what their ancestors had accomplished, Actually, what seems more likely, though, is that no one liked how powerful the Carolingians were becoming. So this is going back to something I mentioned before. And it all kind of ties in together, really, with this Carolingian ideology. So you have rebels that aren't really rebels and useless kings who actually weren't all that useless. People were still loyal to them. And it's the Carolingians actually coming in almost as interlopers that causes the problems, and then they blame these problems on the people on the peripheries who had supposedly turned against the Franks. 
and that on these weak Merovingians, when actually things were probably working okay before the Carolingians came along. So in, in, this, in the case of the Merovingians, then, who is the, the figure that you have uh, selected uh, to, to look at? Really, it has to be this last Merovingian who's overthrown by Pippin, and that's Childeric III. We know very little about him. Even by late Merovingian standards, he's an obscure figure. He was made king in 743. He was actually brought out of a monastery after a six-year interregnum by Pippin. But then, eight years later in 751, Pippin decided he'd had enough and deposed Childeric. He's not mentioned in the continuations or in the Annals of Metz, but his deposition is mentioned in the Royal Frankish Annals. The other few details that we have, such as when he became king, can only be deduced from charters which record the legal activities he was involved in. And the longest description of Childeric is from The Life of Charlemagne, which was written by one of Charlemagne's courtiers called Einhard, to glorify the great king and present an example to his descendants. So that's clearly going to be a, a bias source then, I suppose. <laughs> Definitely, yes. So how do these sources play with, uh, with Childeric then? How do, they, how do they other him? Well, the Royal Frankish Annals um, explained that it was felt necessary to remove Childeric because it was actually Pippin who held all the power. He was the one who was actually going out and fighting and doing all the things that a king was supposed to do. So he should have the royal title to go with it. Childeric was said to have falsely been called king, and then he's sent back to the monastery where he came from in the first place. And all this justification actually came from the Pope, which again reminds us of how Carolingian royal power was conceived in Christian terms. But it's funny to note that no one really explains why the Carolingians let this charade of kingship go on so long, why it took them so long to just get rid of the Merovingians and take over for themselves. But it's Einhard who really goes all in on the process of othering Childeric. In a long passage at the beginning of the life of Charlemagne, so he's actually, his account of Charlemagne with a king from another dynasty who ruled well before Charlemagne came to power. And in this passage, he explains that the Merovingians had long since lost their power, and that all that was left for Childeric was to be wheeled around in this ox cart with his long hair and flowing beard when an important decision needed to be ratified. So he kind of presents this world where Pippin does all the actual ruling of the Franks, and every time they need an important document signing, they wheel out this strange, long-haired figure in an ox cart to sign the form. <laughs> it seems bizarre, but actually, the ox cart and the long hair were important symbols of Merovingian kingship. It's been supposed that the ox cart was actually derived from the way Roman officials would travel around the countryside and hear petitions from the people. The long hair is uh, a very much debated topic, but the Merovingians are described, even in sources from the Merovingian period, as long-haired kings. It's something that is an important symbol of being a Merovingian king, that you have this long hair. And when your hair gets removed, you're no longer eligible for the kingship. And actually, what Pippin does with Childeric is tonsure him 
give him a monastic haircut essentially before sending him into the monastery so they still kind of keep up that one last element of the way merovingian kings were dealt with when they were removed from power cut off the hair they can no longer be king it had happened before there were there had been merovingians in the past when the, when they were fighting amongst themselves who had had their hair cut off and were sent to a monastery but this time it's different because you have someone from another dynasty cutting off the merovingians hair sending him off and taking the kingship for himself and that's why this is more of a transition than what had happened before it's a new takeover a new dynasty and as i say we're not sure exactly what the meanings of these symbols were the ox cart and the long hair but what we do know is that they were used to distinguish the kings from their subjects for einhard though they were objects of ridicule and symbols of otherness that demonstrated how far the merovingians had fallen so it's uh it's not just about justifying Pippin's usurpation. It's about demonstrating that true kings are active warriors and politicians. And that's what he goes on to do when he finally gets to Charlemagne. He has these long descriptions of Charlemagne's wars, conquering people and all these amazing things he's done as a king and then as an emperor. And so Childeric kind of stands for all the later Merovingians who had failed in this regard. And it's important to remember that their own style of rule, as I've already said, was perfectly valid at the time. They had a political system that worked. So what Einhard's really doing here is into figures of ridicule. He's taking these important features of their kingship and turning them against the Merovingians because the Carolingians, as far as we're aware, didn't ride around in ox carts and didn't have long hairs and beards. Uh, we don't know exactly what their uh, facial hairstyle was, but probably mustaches rather than beards. <laughs> and uh, again, as we saw with Griffo, it's as you get further from the point in time where this important event happens that you get more information about it. So the earlier sources don't tell us much. They either ignore Childeric or as with the Royal Frankish Annals, kind of give us a little bit of information about him, just to remind us that he's been removed from power, even though we hadn't heard that he'd come to power in the first place. And it's with Einhard later on, when you have this longer history showing the Carolingian success story, that you can finally look back and say, look at these fools who rode around on an ox cart and had long hair. What was the point of them? Isn't it great that we got rid of them and got these proper kings who know what they're doing? I mean, that's a that's a pretty great trick of propaganda to be able to take someone's someone's symbol of legitimacy uh, and authority and to turn it against them to delegitimize them. So, with that in mind, and and, and maybe taking uh, a, a big a broader look at the other two categories that you looked at, the other two figures you looked at, Griffo and Radbod, uh, what can we learn about early Carolingian political ideology and uh, the significance of propaganda uh, for their dynasty uh, from your study? I suppose the first thing to bear in mind, just to kind of come on to something else I touched on in this article, is that these others are all very immediate. They're on the borders of the Carolingian world, whether geographically or chronologically. People further away weren't as much of a problem. For example, Muslims and Slavs weren't presented in the same hostile ways as pagans or rebellious Saxons. 
and the earliest Merovingians were still seen as models of royal power, this shows us that for the early Carolingians, a lot of their ideology and propaganda was turned towards justification. And this is something that I've mentioned time and time again in this interview, I know. They wanted to be seen as these great Christian peace-bringing kings and with all their aggression. So it's the people they had to deal with directly that had to be othered as pagans, rebels, and useless kings. The Carolingians supported the missionaries in their efforts to convert pagans. They fought to restore a state of affairs where the Franks ruled over their neighboring peoples. And they took over the reins of royal power when it was no longer feasible to leave them in the hands of the Merovingians. Of course, this is very much history written by the victors. And the reality was a bit different to what we find in the sources. But there wasn't necessarily agreement on a single Carolingian version of events, even if the broad outline was the same. Instead, what we have is history being uh, written and rewritten over a period of 60 years or so, needs and expectations of an audience in a time of dramatic shifts in the political landscape. So Carolingian ideology was monolithic enough that certain groups were other, and their consistently presented as other across a range of sources. But the ideology was also flexible enough that each author could bring their own version of the story to an ongoing discourse about the recent history of the Carolingian world. It's also important that this discourse of otherness left enough ambiguity to allow for integration. Certain scapegoats remained beyond the pale, and this is where people like Radbod, Griffo, and Childeric III come in. But any pagan could be a potential Christian. That was the purpose of missionary activity, after all, to convert pagans to Christianity. Any rebel was just a misguided subject. That, again, was the purpose of these Carolingian wars, to bring people into the fold. And the Merovingian dynasty still represented the source of Frankish royal power. The earliest members of the the dynasty were still seen as templates for how the Carolingians ruled themselves. So I hope what I've shown with my study is that we have to look beyond the monolith to see the debates and discussions that formed what we can see manifest as Carolingian ideology and propaganda. So your study shows us that this is something of a discourse. So I know we don't have the, the, the sources to really demonstrate this explicitly, but do you think that these are, are these points on which Carolingian rulers and other supporters of the Carolingian dynasty were being criticized or being questioned? I think potentially, yes. I think these were discussions that aren't just happening in the sources. They're happening at the court. People are wondering why all this had happened, why there had been so much strife in their recent history and you can definitely see instances where the Carolingians are reacting to criticism for example I briefly mentioned Charlemagne's cousin Tassilo who was a ruler of Bavaria and Bavaria was thought to be within the Frankish sphere of influence but it had a very strong ducal family so there was a a long dynasty there of ruling dukes and they were very resistant to Carolingian power. And so we can imagine that they, they are telling everyone that they're not subjects of the Carolingians, they are independent. 
And when Charlemagne comes in and tries to take over Bavaria directly, this resistance comes to a head. So it's not always possible to see exactly what's going on, but it's evident that not everyone agreed with this Carolingian version of history. Well, Dr. Broom, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today about your article. Thanks for letting me talk. Well, that's going to be it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and the Agnes Forum at claytemplemedia.com. And until next time, awe atque wale.